This is the Pick Your Poison podcast. I'm your host, Dr. JP, and I'm here to share my passion for poisons in this interactive show. Will our patients survive this podcast? It's up to you and the choices you make. Our episode today is called The Deadly Delivery. Want to know what risky behavior often targets pregnant women and children? What massive overdose requires surgical intervention? What exactly is a drug loo and where can you find one? Then stay tuned. A 30-year-old woman is brought to the emergency department by EMS. They picked her up at a bus stop after a bystander called 911, reporting the woman was unconscious. When the medics arrived, the patient was awake but lethargic. She protested, saying she didn't want to be treated. The medics felt she was too lethargic to refuse, so they transported her here. Via the Spanish-speaking nurse, the patient denies complaints and says she needs to leave. She's on a tight schedule, and her friends are awaiting her arrival at their apartment. She doesn't want medical care and says she's merely sleepy after a long flight. That said, she doesn't refuse or attempt to get up off the stretcher as the nurse hooks her up to the monitor. She's having trouble keeping her eyes open. Her temperature is 98.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Her heart rate is 90 beats per minute. Respiratory rate is 10 and oxygen saturation is 97%. The vital signs are unremarkable. The nurse reads the bag tag on the patient's suitcase as she pushes it out of the way. B.O.G., she says. Bogota. I was just there a few months ago for vacation. Loved Colombia. The patient smiles weakly as the nurse chats with her in an effort to figure out what's going on. The patient says she's visiting college friends and mumbles something about the Statue of Liberty. The nurse talks her into some lab work and an IV. You can't put your finger on it, but something seems off. Watchful waiting is the best option at the moment. Either the patient is going to wake up, be fine, and leave, or she'll get worse and develop more symptoms. 30 minutes later, on your way to another patient's room, you notice the woman bent over, clutching her stomach. She pops a pill from her purse. She tries to hide the bottle, but you see the label. You don't need to know Spanish to translate the word antidiuretico and antidiarrheal. Question number one. This is an antidiarrhea medicine overdose. A. True. B. False. The answer, true. Full disclosure, though, this is a trick question. Back to that in a minute. You may have taken antidiarrheal medicines, likely without any problems. Loperamide, brand name Imodium, is available over-the-counter in the U.S. and many other countries. You can overdose on loperamide, and it can be abused. Why? It's an opioid. In 2019, the FDA changed the over-the-counter preparations to a max of 48 milligrams per box, and each dose now has to be individually packaged, like in blister packs. This was in an effort to reduce loperamide abuse. It's very interesting in overdose and worth its own podcast. It can cause sedation, and in contrast to most opioids, causes a prolonged QTC. If you've listened to other episodes, you know that puts patients at risk for lethal arrhythmias. You ask the nurse to check an EKG and ask the patient to see the box of medicine. She reluctantly hands it over. She's only taken half the box and her EKG is normal. Loperamide can cause sedation. It's a side effect even in therapeutic doses, so it might be the cause of her sleepiness. She might be taking more than she should, but it's doubtful this is a serious overdose. The real issue here, and the reason question number one is a trick question, is why is this woman taking too much loperamide? Did she develop a bad case of diarrhea before she left Colombia? Maybe, 
probably not. The clerk announces a call overhead. You pick up the phone. A man says he's your patient's husband, and he's in the waiting room, and wants to know when she's going to be released. Uh Uh-oh, the woman didn't mention a husband. You say, sorry, can't help you, and hang up. This is a real code brown. Figuratively, at the moment, if your suspicion is correct, it's about to become a literal code brown as well. There are several red flags raising my concerns something much more serious is happening. Question number two, what are they? A, her mental status at the bus stop. B, loperamide. C, her suitcase. D, the phone call from the, quote, husband. The answer, B and D. I'm concerned about why she's taking this loperamide. And side note, she hasn't had a bowel movement in the ER yet, so how bad is this diarrhea? And the suspicious phone call. You sit down at your computer and pull up the order screen. Deciding what to order, your mouse hovers over abdominal x-ray and abdominal CT. The nurse looks up from her computer and says the patient's blood work is normal, except her pregnancy test. It's positive. You move the mouse away from the x-ray and CT options, since they're relatively contraindicated in pregnant patients. I say relatively because whatever is best for the mother is always best for the baby, but obviously we try to avoid radiation in pregnant patients. What are these red flags pointing to, and what are we looking for with abdominal imaging? Is there something we can do instead? Will our patient consent to the care she needs? All right, a lot of questions. First, I'm concerned this patient is a body packer, in lay terms, a drug mule. She's from Colombia, a country we know where drugs originate. Second, the anti-diarrheal. It works by slowing down your gastrointestinal tract. Body packers often take medicines to slow intestinal transit until they they arrive at the delivery point. It doesn't help to have a bowel movement and expel the drugs on the airplane. Lastly, this so-called husband. Someone is tracking her movements and waiting for the delivery of their drugs, and they're in your waiting room. Let's talk about the packets. They're typically an inch or two long. Initially, wrappers were things like condoms or balloons, but these days the packets are typically well-prepared to prevent bursting. Composition varies, but it's often several layers of latex encased in a wax coating. Packers can swallow 50 to 100 of these packets. One case reported 500 in the GI tract. Can you even imagine? Each package contains anywhere from a half a gram to 10 grams of drug, meaning one person can easily carry a kilo or a kilo and a half. Typically, the packets are swallowed, but they can be inserted in the rectum or the vagina. Cocaine and heroin are the most common drugs transported. Anything could be inside, though, including cannabis, ecstasy, and meth. Basically, the body packer swallows the drugs, takes the flight, and then excretes, yes, poops out the drugs after they arrive at the delivery destination. Picture a very seedy airport hotel. They stay there until each and every packet is passed and accounted for. The man on the phone isn't her husband, but someone tracking a kilo or two of drugs belonging to a cartel. X-rays are useful screening tools to see if packets are present, and CT is the best imaging study, giving a lot of detail, including how many packets there are. Before we get into how to treat her, we have to discuss whether or not we can treat her. She's agreed to labs in an IV, but she's also said she doesn't want medical treatment, and I'm pretty sure she doesn't want us to discover her secret. Everything about the treatment of body packers is fraught with ethical issues. We could have several podcasts with heated debates on both sides of these arguments. Let's touch on what the issues are, then come back to our patient. 
In the U.S., patients who are awake and alert and oriented can make any medical decisions they like, including bad ones. They're allowed to refuse care, refuse medicines, and refuse surgery, even if the outcome is certain death. As Americans, we value our freedom and autonomy, and these laws protect those rights. However, if the patient is confused and unable to understand the ramifications of their decisions, then they may not have the right to refuse treatment. An easy example is a drunk person in the ER. They aren't allowed to leave until sober, even if we have to restrain or sedate them, because they're a danger to themselves and can't understand the ramifications of refusing care. The other category where patients don't have the right to make decisions is in the case of suicidal or homicidal ideation. Suicidal patients are a danger to themselves and lose the right to refuse at least basic psychiatric care. Similarly, homicidal patients can't be released to harm someone else. Body packers have the same rights and can refuse care even if they're under arrest. They can be kept in the hospital against their will, but not made to consent to any medical treatment. Bottom line, if awake and alert, the patient makes the decisions. However, once they become altered for any reason, we can and must do what's medically indicated. It sounds black and white, but the reality is often gray and very complicated. The best bet is to involve the hospital ethics committee to help navigate these ethical and legal issues that unfailingly arise. Speaking of legal issues, the second problem, and one far more hotly debated, is whether to involve law enforcement. I feel very strongly, as do many, that our first duty is to the patient. We've sworn an oath to do no harm, and while it doesn't strictly apply to legal issues, having the patient arrested will likely qualify as harm in their own opinion. I think of it like the 1980s when people were afraid to seek care for HIV and AIDS, concerned that they would lose their insurance, lose their job, and become ostracized from their communities. Unfortunately, this issue is once again not that simple. There are dangerous people, as I noted, looking for the patient. In this case, he's in our waiting room. We have to consider the patient's safety as well as that of the other patients and the staff. The nurse tells you our patient has developed intractable vomiting. Nausea medicine isn't helping. You go in the room to find out what's going on and to assess her mental status to determine if she's able to make her own decisions. She's currently awake and alert. The sedation from the loperamide seems to have worn off, at least for now. You tell her she's pregnant, expecting her to be surprised. She's not, saying she's about 12 weeks along. She does consent to treatment now because she's having excruciating abdominal pain in addition to the nonstop vomiting. There are two options for imaging. Neither is as good as CT, the gold standard, but both MRI and ultrasound can show the packets and both are safe in pregnancy. At your hospital, ultrasound is quicker, so you order that study. Her urine drug screen comes back negative, a relief, though it doesn't change our suspicion. More on this in a minute. Question three, what are the potential complications of body packing drugs? A, a bowel obstruction, B, packet rupture, C, bowel perforation, D, a cardiac arrest, E, all of the above. The answer, E, all of the above. While we're waiting on the ultrasound, let's talk about what can go wrong, really what can't go wrong. There are two main categories of problems. The first is mechanical problems caused directly by the packets. They can get stuck, causing a bowel obstruction, and they can cause bowel perforations leading to sepsis and death. The second category is related to what's inside. As I mentioned, each contains as much as 10 grams of pure uncut drugs. If a single packet ruptures, the patient is exposed to a lethal amount of an illicit drug. 
Our patient returns from ultrasound and you pull up the images. You don't need to be a radiologist to see a whole bunch of large foreign bodies. With this confirmation, I do two things right off the bat. I tell the clerk to give her an alias, meaning changing her chart to a fake name, so the people tracking her at least have a harder time. Second, I'd call the security at the hospital as well as the hospital ethics committee for backup. The ultrasound shows the packets, but doesn't show if she has a bowel obstruction because it's not a great test for this. Her symptoms, however, are definitely consistent, so you call surgery. The surgeons complain you haven't proven there's an obstruction, and they argue back and forth about more imaging, including the risks of x-ray and CT versus the risk of waiting hours to get an MRI. Basically stalling. Nobody wants to operate on a pregnant woman. Let's get back to the pregnancy. Why would she become a drug mule when pregnant? Why do it at all, in fact? Like last week's episode, The Mad Hatter, it's a simple question to ask from here at my desk. In reality, the answers are complicated. Often it's for the money or for the plane ticket. Packers can have a low socioeconomic status in places without many opportunities. A great movie showing the nuances of this issue is Maria Full of Grace. Packers can earn several thousand dollars for one plane ride. Often children and pregnant women are targeted. Why? Because they're less likely to be caught. International airports like JFK, LAX, and international hubs in Europe and Asia are prepared to deal with drug smugglers. What raises suspicion? Nervousness, sweating, signs of drug intoxication, obviously. An interesting one is people who don't eat, even on long international flights. They avoid food to avoid the urge to defecate. Once suspicion is raised, these airports have x-ray machines to screen for packets. If present, the person might have to use a drug loo. This is a toilet on a raised platform that monitors defecation and cleans the packets if excreted. If you needed another reason not to become a body packer, defecating in front of the TSA is right up there at the top of my list. Who wouldn't get a screening x-ray? That's right, a pregnant woman. And what about her drug screen? Why was it negative and why was I relieved? I've said it before and I'll say it again. The urine drug screen is an almost completely useless test, a fact not understood by most people, including most physicians. Why? That's a whole nother podcast. Let's skip it and focus on what it means for our patient. First, I'm sure you know opioids are part of the drug screen. The patient was taking loperamide, an opioid. We saw her do it. Why didn't it show up? Because the urine drug screen only tests for naturally occurring opioids like morphine and codeine. Loperamide is synthetic and therefore doesn't usually show up. If her drug screen is positive, it may, let me stress again, it may give you information about what's inside the packets. If her test lit up for opioids or cocaine, I'd be suspicious this was the drug she's carrying. I'd also be scared a positive result meant to rupture packet. Again, this isn't definitive. It could simply indicate a contaminant on the outside of a package. You're still caring for her in the ER since the surgeons don't want to admit her to the ICU until after she goes to the OR. The nurse calls you back to the bedside. The patient's blood pressure is now 200 over 100. Her heart rate is 150 beats per minute. She's pale and sweaty. She grabs your hand and says, please, doctor, don't let me die. The hair stands up on the back of your neck. You call surgery for an emergent intervention. Question number three, what toxidrome is this? A, opioid. B, sympathomimetic. C, anticholinergic or D, sedative hypnotic? The answer, B. This is a sympathomimetic toxidrome. She's hypertensive, tachycardic, and sweating or wet, meaning this is probably cocaine and one of the packets has ruptured. 
The surgeons stop arguing with you and rush her to the OR. What's the treatment for body packing? Well, let's take a step back and discuss a few common scenarios. First, an asymptomatic patient, perhaps brought in by law enforcement. The main treatment is watchful waiting, collecting the packets from the stool as they're passed. The patients know exactly how many packets they're transporting as they are responsible for delivering each and every last one. Most of the time, the packets do pass uneventfully. What about a laxative to speed up expulsion from the rectum? Sounds like a good idea, since getting them out means less chance of rupture. However, many laxatives are oil-based and therefore a bad idea because they might dissolve the wax or latex wrappings. There is one treatment we recommend if the patient consents, though there isn't much data to prove it works. Whole bowel irrigation, a method of gastrointestinal decontamination, consisting of drinking one to two liters of go lightly per hour. Think of it like an extra, extra strong colonoscopy prep. A mechanical complication, like a bowel obstruction or perforation, is treated surgically to remove the packets. This is a tough job for the surgeons. They check every inch of the bowel to ensure all the packets are removed. The human bowel is about 20 feet long. It's not an easy job. What if a packet ruptures? Well, that depends on what's inside. If it's heroin, the patient will develop an opioid toxidrome, which I'm sure you remember from previous episodes is an altered mental status, depressed breathing, and pinpoint pupils. Naloxone isn't going to work here. Why not? Because no matter how much you have, it can't reverse the massively lethal amount of heroin the patient is exposed to. So the treatment is a ventilator to breathe for them until the body metabolizes the drug and they wake up. Massive cocaine toxicity is a bigger problem. As with naloxone, you can try an alpha blocker called fentolamine and sedatives like benzodiazepines, Valium, for example. But again, you won't be able to give enough to counter the huge overdose. Cocaine packet rupture is also a surgical emergency in a desperate attempt to remove the packet before the patient dies. While theoretically possible, the odds are not in favor of the patient. What happened to our patient in the OR? The nurse calls upstairs for an update. You hold your breath, waiting to hear the patient died on the table. The nurse hangs up. To your surprise, the woman is still alive and the surgeons have stabilized her. How? She had a microperforation, a leak rather than a complete packet rupture. The surgeons removed 98 packets from inside her intestines. That's the good news. The bad news? She's likely having a miscarriage as she's having heavy vaginal bleeding. Cocaine is associated with miscarriages. This early in the pregnancy, there's nothing OBGYN can do to stop or prevent it from happening. This returns us again to the issue of law enforcement. The surgeons now have several kilos of cocaine belonging to a cartel in the operating room. If law enforcement is involved, they'll take the packets. If not, hospital security will dispose of the drugs according to local protocols and record they did so so there's no question of theft by hospital staff. This is a fictional case, as are all our cases, to protect the innocent. However, it is based on real cases that occur around the world. The first reported case of body packing was in 1973 in Canada. A 21-year-old man had a bowel obstruction after swallowing a condom filled with hashish from Lebanon. While we're here, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention another category of patients called body stuffers. Body packers, as we've mentioned, swallow large amounts of well-packaged drugs to smuggle them. Body stuffers swallow drugs in order to hide them from, say, the police. In contrast, the drugs are typically in smaller amounts, but are very poorly packaged, say, in cling wrap or dime bags. 
I always say if you need another reason not to do drugs, aside from the many obvious ones, remember, the drugs might have been inside someone's gastrointestinal tract and pooped out before they got to you. Sadly, many cases of body packing are discovered post-mortem. Patients are afraid to come to the hospital, not allowed to come, or simply don't arrive in time for treatment. I know there are crime writers listening, so I'm going to touch briefly on some graphic details. If you're listening with a child or have delicate sensibilities yourself, you might want to skip ahead about 30 seconds. The postmortem cases can be gruesome as patients are eviscerated to remove the drugs. Thankfully, the published cases I've seen were cut open after death, not before. The images of eviscerated bodies in hotel bathrooms are very graphic. I caution you about Googling them because once seen, can't be unseen. On a much lighter topic and the last question in today's podcast, question four. What food was mistaken for drug packets on CT scan? A, meatballs. B, fufu, a starchy West African food. C, hot dogs. D, empanadas. Post your answers on our Twitter and Instagram feeds, both at PickPoison1. Follow and you'll see the answer when I post it. Remember, never try anything on this podcast at home or anywhere else. Finally, thanks for your attention. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making the podcast. It helps if you subscribe, leave reviews, and or tell your friends. All the episodes are available on our website, pickpoison.com, Apple, Spotify, or any other location where podcasts are available. Additional sources like references and photos are available on the website along with transcripts. While I'm a real doctor, this podcast is fictional, meant for entertainment and educational purposes, not medical advice. If you have a medical problem, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thank you.